I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to another episode of Horse Hour. I already feel inadequate for this episode and it's because I have a very, very intelligent, clever guest with me. She's doing a PhD. Her name is Lindsay St. George and she's into research for horses and she's into biomechanics. Now, as a normal, and I say normal, but basically amateur rider and a a radio host, I obviously know nothing about the muscles. So I'm going to introduce Lindsay. Welcome, Lindsay. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? Good, thank you. Now, I do feel inadequate because you're into, it feels like, biology and scientific stuff and you do loads of research. So please explain what you do. Uh, Okay, so basically, uh, I'm currently doing a PhD at the University of Central Lancashire, which is in Preston, up in the northwest of England. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I'm currently looking at for my PhD is how do the muscles of the horse facilitate the jumping movement so we're actually looking at muscle activity patterns and how this relates to the movement of the horse and can we potentially use this information to help inform training somehow that's incredible see I told you very very inadequate here I just look at the outside and you don't even think about what the muscles do inside and how they work but actually it is really fascinating because the research that you do will help us moving forward in the future train our horses in the in a better way to get the best out of them hopefully I mean if you look at how human athletes are trained there's so much science behind that um, in terms of you know, the intensity that they need to work at, the duration that they need to work at, what muscles are you actually targeting? Like if you go to the gym and a personal trainer and you say, I want to work on this area, this area, this area, they'll have certain exercises that, you know, can help you with that. But with horses, it's just so traditional and anecdotal and it's always been that way. And Obviously, it works because, you know, we get horses jumping meter 60 courses and, you know, winning and doing Grand Prix. So obviously it works. But is there a way that we can maybe scientifically inform it to get these horses fit and performing at their best without maybe, you know, exposing them to the injuries that happen when you're overusing and overloading Mm -hmm. the horses? Uh, are there better ways that we can train them? I don't know. It's it's just kind of a starting point now, but I'm hoping it'll be able to inform people in the future somehow. 
what made you get into this? I mean, do you have horses? Uh, well, from the accent, I'm actually from Canada. Okay. I went to university wanting to be a vet, but I ended up changing my mind for various <laughs> reasons. But I didn't think I would get to ride as much as I wanted if I became a vet because of their lifestyle. And yeah. there was other reasons, but that was the main one. Basically, my vet told me, do you like riding, you know, five horses a day? Because you won't be able to do that anymore. Um, so that's what you did before then? You used to ride full time? Yeah. Did you? Were you an instructor? Was it professional? I never... I never was had a knack for teaching people, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> but I did a lot of training. I had my own horse that I competed on. I never competed to like a ridiculously high level in jumping or anything. But I did do a lot of training for people, mainly starting off young horses. And then you kind of give them away before yeah. they can do anything big. But um yeah, that was what I spent my days doing when I wasn't in university. So jumping and show jumping was your passion? Yeah. And yeah. so that fits well then with the research that you're doing because you already understand a lot of elements of uh, that goes with it. Yeah, I mean, if you put me in a class with like Grand Prix jumpers, like, there's no way I'm going to win. But that, <laughs> None of that, us are going to win that. <laughs> yeah, but that was my passion. And, you know, I worked really hard to get to the level that I got to. So, yeah, I do... I do know enough. It's not like I'm doing this without any, you know, equestrian background. Yeah. So I think I got quite lucky in the sense that I actually get to research something that I'm, you know, interested in personally. Absolutely. So then you decided to not be a vet and somehow made it into researching <laughs> the biomechanics. Yeah, I actually finished my undergrad at the University of Guelph in Canada and I didn't really know what I was going to do at that point. And actually, I was at the Royal Winter Fair, which is a massive um, horse show and agricultural fair in, in Toronto in Canada. I would say it's probably equivalent to like the Horse of the Year show here. Oh, wow. And I thought about doing a master's degree. But at the time, there was very little equine research unless you were actually part of the vet school. Mm hmm obviously I wasn't going to be yeah. <laughs> so I came across Hartbury College at the horse show and they were saying how you know we've got this master's degree you can research horses and you know so it sounded like a good opportunity I didn't really know if I wanted to come to England <laughs> um, but I applied got in and my dad basically said just go it's a year of your life yeah, exactly. In the long, in the, you know, grand scheme of things, it's actually not a lot of time. So I went and I really enjoyed it. And I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to do a PhD after that. So do you have to get selected to do a PhD? So not anybody can do that. There's various ways. There's They're occasionally advertised. Well, they're constantly advertised online you can present your idea as a PhD and you know hopefully someone will take you on um, and you know supervise you in that PhD which is what happened with me mm -hmm. but yeah there's numerous ways to kind of get into one but obviously there's certain requirements that you have to meet to be accepted on to to doing a PhD. Yeah, and there's three of you that are doing this PhD. Are you all working together or are you studying different things? It's an individual piece of work. It's an individual thesis. So it's just my research. But 
I also work as a research assistant for Dr. Sarah Hobbs, who is the director of my PhD. So she's my like main supervisor, but she's very, very involved in a lot of biomechanics research with some of the like greatest researchers out there right now, like Hillary Clayton, I would probably say is her main person that she works with that has like a really well-known name. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Sarah. And then I also have a friend, Danny Holt, who is doing a PhD at the university as well, but in conjunction with Myerscale College. And she's looking at how horses adapt movement-wise and muscle-wise to different changes in surface. So we do have to say that your research is still ongoing. So we don't have any conclusive data at the moment. At the moment, no. I finished collecting all my data in August. And how did you find that data? What did you have to do? We can collect 3D movement data. It's called kinematics, basically. And we have equipment, some very expensive high-tech cameras, where we place reflective markers on anatomical landmarks on the horse. So, you know, we'll put one on the fetlock, one on the scapula, elbow, etc., etc., without using the crazy anatomical (laughs) terms. Um, Yeah, keep it simple for us, please. (laughs) And we calibrate a volume in front of the cameras, and the cameras emit infrared light, Mm -hmm. which bounces off the reflective markers. And essentially, that signal is sent to a computer where we can actually, well, not we, the computer reconstructs the location of that marker in 3D space. Wow. So you're essentially on your computer looking at these dots that are moving in 3D, and it's showing you how those anatomical landmarks are moving through your volume. And from that, we can look at joint angles angular velocity so how fast is the joint flexing or extending Mm -hmm. so that's how we get our kinematic data there's lots about that online if you want to go and read and get a more you know conclusive description and then to look at the muscle activity patterns we've also got a big piece of technology which has little sensors they're wireless and they have electrodes on them And we just shave a little area over the muscle that we're interested in and put these electrodes over top with, I use really sticky carpet tape Mm. um, because it's it's kind of difficult to get them to stay on when you're doing such dynamic movements. And essentially, because muscles are related to electricity, if you kind of go back to exercise physiology, when your muscle contracts, there's obviously some voltage that goes from the nerves and that's what the mus- how the muscle fibers contract. We can actually use these sensors to measure the voltage during the contraction. So it shows us when the muscle's active and when it's inactive, essentially. And so then once you've collected all that data and you have the different results, how do you take that data and put it into practice and say, okay, this is how you need to change your training regime? Well, it takes a lot to to actually process the data in the computer. But basically, what I'm hoping to do or what I'm trying to do at the moment is I've got data from elite horses which I classed as horses that were competing at fox hunter or higher. Mm -hmm. But I was very lucky to be able to collect from Warren Lampard and Laura Whiteway, who are both very high-level riders that have horses that are higher than fox hunter. So 
I got some really good uh, data from them. And then I've collected data from, you know, your average school horse. Mm-hmm. Horses that obviously are fit, but are probably not going to get up to that level anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. So I'm looking at the difference in I've got these signals from the horses going off jump over jumps and what their muscles are doing. And I'm looking at the difference between the two. So is there differences to when these muscles are turning on in each horse? Or is there differences in how much signal I'm getting, the magnitude of the signal? So essentially, is the muscle working harder in the non-elite horses, which we would probably expect. But do you know yet if it is? I don't know yet. I have to I have to finish that. If you talk to me in a few months, I can probably (laughs) let you know. But I've got data from canter and jump, Uh which is something that I'm really interested in, in terms of training. Uh, I did a questionnaire about a year or two ago, and I got loads of equestrians. Uh, I got over 200 respondents, and they answered questions on, you know, how they would train the horses, the show jumping horses. What do you think are the most important parts of a training regime or components in terms of like flat work, grid work, jumping, etc.? And canter, quality canter, came out as the most important, you know, aspect of training. Oh, really? Yes. And actually, if you look at a lot of the elite riders or the high level show jumping riders they tend not to jump their horses at home Mm. or they very rarely will Um, and the horses mainly jump at competition this is not speaking for everyone obviously everyone is different but I know in terms of a lot of the people I've spoken to that are high level they tend to keep the jumping to a minimum at home why do they do that then from the questionnaire and I had some open-ended questions so you know you're allowed to explain your answer yeah. I think from that and what I personally think is that the lower level riders, they tend to jump more because or one of the reasons is potentially because it's a confidence thing and you're still building that skill as a rider. Hmm. So the more you jump, the more practice you're getting and the more you're like honing that skill, that jumping skill, you know, seeing your distance, your position over the fence, turns, etc. Whereas your professional riders that can ride eight horses a day or something, they've already got that skill down pat. And if the horse has it down as well, why would you overload the tendons and the muscles and all the structures of the limbs? That's where you're going to get a potential injury. Well, they say that about marathon runners, humans. Mm. You know, They never run the full marathon before the marathon. They might do... No, half of it or a little bit of it and then they don't go full until the actual day because they they peak on that day so yeah maybe it's similar for horses I think it's a similar thing definitely um because a horse every time it lands from a fence there's a study that says the horse has at least 1.5 times its body weight on that limb oh my gosh. That, that forelimb that lands so the more you load those structures the more you're putting the horse at risk for an injury. And obviously these big Grand Prix horses are sacred. You don't want to be injuring them. So, mm. And also the riders don't need the practice. They can go into the ring and jump a meter 50 class and, you know. And stay on. Yeah. <laughs> so if I can show that actually your jump stride and your canter stride, what ha- what's happening in the muscles, there's not a significant difference between the two or there is a significant difference between the two. I don't know yet, 
potentially I could say, actually, if you're training and you're, you know, doing a lot of canter work and, you know, trying to create that quality canter, that should be a massive part of your training regime. And maybe you could actually take the jump schooling down a bit mm-hmm. and, you know, save your horse's legs or... I've always found it interesting, um, the different, the different very experienced jumpers or show jumpers and how they train many who have I've spoken to take a lot of time in their groundwork and mm-hmm. in their flat well flat work yeah and it's about control 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 and I'm constantly getting told it's control release control release you know and yeah. that's how they they then going over a jump isn't so much aim fire and go for it it's actually more you're supposed to just pop over it yeah so a lot of their work is done at home and it's even going very back. They always go back to basics, back to walk, mm. trot, canter and changing transitions and having yeah. little poles, you know, in the school. So you lay the poles down, doing a lot of that work rather yeah. than the jumping. Yeah. And I mean, all the jump is biomechanically is an extended canter stride. So the way you get your footfalls so you know are are the canter footfalls you know that is the exact same pattern in the jump Mm -hmm. except you've got an extended suspension which is obviously when you're in the air so your canter suspension is just you know your jump suspension when you're in the air it's the exact same footfall pattern Um, and that's why people will say you know the jump is just something in the way of your canter stride (laughs) which is sometimes more difficult to think of than it should be but it is essentially the same. Do you think the research that you're doing that might help injuries and help a horses to recover easier and quicker from injuries and also prevent them? I don't think it'll have anything to do with, you know, recovery per se, because it's, it doesn't really have much to do with recovery and therapy or rehab or anything like that. But in terms of prevention, maybe down the road, quite a long ways when I've looked at this really in depth and I'm, I'm very confident to say maybe don't jump as much maybe do but in this way I'm not sure it's really hard to say at this point in time but hopefully it will be able to inform training in a way that could potentially prevent you know repetitive strain injuries from you know landing or taking off and etc. Mm. And what have you found most interesting so far? For me, the most interesting part of like doing this PhD is talking to people like Sarah and, you know, a lot of the other people that she's involved with who are, have been doing this for years and have been involved in so many research projects in the past with horses and biomechanics and just kind of like picking their brain is really interesting to me. And also collecting the data, especially when I get to go to like these show jumping yards uh, or these yards of these big riders and, you know, talking to them about, you know, what they do and what their opinions are. And I think with with horses and equestrians, there's so many different ways of doing things. Mm, Yes. And every way works. It's just finding which way is best for you and which way is best for the horse. So it's hard to say whether people, because people are very traditional and there's a, there is a big gap between what research is being done and the actual practice of it. And that's why I did my questionnaire, because a lot, I think research, 
should implement what actual people are doing in practice and what's important to them. Because if my research doesn't reflect that, then how are they going to use it practically? Yeah, that's so true. But also we need your research to help develop because what I'm finding from when we're doing each episode of the podcast is every person is saying exactly the same thing. We as equestrians are used to what has been done and we tend to stick to what has been done and we're very reluctant to change yeah but we all want to learn and we do want to change so we kind of need this research we need some facts and scientific evidence to say look this is what we found this will really help the muscles this will help your horse's development it will make them more comfortable then probably equestrians are more inclined to try different techniques definitely and I think when people are doing research or when people are you know, starting off. Actually, if you find no difference in your results, if you don't find a significant difference in your statistics or something, that's, you're always told that's actually not a bad thing. And if I don't find anything that, you know, maybe goes against what training is being done now, that's actually not a bad thing either, because I can say the way that we're doing things is effective for muscular training. But it just gives scientific backing to the traditional methods. I might not even have to say that a change needs to be made anywhere, but I just can't say right now. (laughs) So how long will it take you to complete this PhD? The thesis submission is meant to be on the 30th of September. So next year, so it's going to take you a whole year. Yeah, I've got a year to finish writing up and finishing the results. So hopefully I can speak to you when that's Yes, when we that's should. All done. And then you can tell us what you found. Yeah. And do you have a plan then after that? Or, or is that very depending on what results you find? I think my plan would be to hopefully stay in research. I really like my job as a research assistant. So if that could continue, I'd be quite happy. You'll be writing a book on all the research that you found. <laughs> Well, we publish in scientific journals, which I think is another reason why, you know, there's a gap between the equestrian and the research that's being done, because not everyone has access to that. We would, I'd have no idea. No, I wouldn't even know where to look. But interestingly, I wouldn't even know to look for research on horses. I I don't know why. It's just not something, it's not in the mass market. So maybe you need to kind of publish it in in horse and rider magazines and... (laughs) Well, this is the thing is a lot of people or not not a lot of people, but in in magazines, they can take a piece of research and write an article on it for, you know, just your general reader. So I think if we're putting a lot more focus on, yes, getting it published in scientific journals, but also can we get magazines interested in writing an article about it that, you know, anyone can read and anyone has access to, that would be really good to help you know, bridge that gap between the two. Well, I'm, I know that the Horse Hour community would love to help you. So if you do have any more questionnaires that need filling in, just uh, just hashtag Horse Hour and I know that everybody will help you because we all love working together and we want you to be really successful and we can't wait to find out what results you get. I mean, I can't wait. Yeah, thank you. That'd be great. It would be really great. We're, we're doing a lot of research within the group of researchers. And there's a lot of research happening on equestrian surfaces within the team. Mm-hmm. Um, they've actually developed uh, a group called RACES, which stands for Research and Consultancy in Equine Surfaces. There's researchers from Anglia Ruskin, Myerskill College and UCLan that all work together and look into these um, equestrian surfaces 
or um, conduct the equestrian surfaces research. So we're talking about surfaces in schools and different riding surfaces. Yeah, a lot's been done in terms of, you know, synthetic race tracks or racing surfaces, or that's kind of where I think a lot of the research maybe started off. But if you if you want a lot of information on what research has been done in terms of surfaces for the sports horse, you know, surfaces for jumping and dressage, etc., anything in your riding school, really, uh, the FEI has published something called the Equine Surfaces White Paper. Oh, okay. And it's a collaborative piece of work between quite a few researchers. There's a whole page of their names. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the most extensive study on equine surfaces that's been done and the FEI is behind it and they've published it and the FEI is getting very involved in developing standards for the surfaces that these horses are competing on, especially because obviously the FEI is, got, is holding up the majority of the big competitions. Yes. So um, they're very interested in developing standards for that and just standards in general for arena surfaces wow okay so actually someone could put something down that's quite more damaging for the horse they could trip they could fall they could sprain their ankle yeah there's basically in the white paper they've developed these functional properties that a surface should have and described them in a way that the rider can understand and would be desirable to the rider so there's a lot of information in that document that relates to the research that's been done and you know how we can measure these properties objectively and scientifically and you know try and find what is the optimal surface for horses to be working on is there a difference between the breeds in terms of the muscles and different breeds there's i haven't specifically looked at that Mm. but there has been research that's been done in terms of the actual composition of the muscles so there's different muscle fiber types there's the muscles that you use for sprinting yeah. as a good example and there's the muscle fibers that are used for you know more longer s- slow work or long slow distance work so that your thoroughbred is going to have more of your fast fibers for sprinting whereas your endurance horse is probably going to have developed more of your muscle fibers for long slow distance work so that's been done. But in terms of looking at actual activity patterns and whether there's differences between different breeds, I haven't looked into that yet. But another thing that would influence that is the amount of fat over the muscles. Hmm. So you've got certain breeds like a thoroughbred, for example, that's going to have very little superficial fat over the muscles. Whereas I've measured a few cobs, for instance, <laughs> and it, you know you don't get as great data from them because you've got that layer of fat between your electrode and your muscle that's kind of getting between the signal that you're trying to measure. So yes, there will be differences, um, but in terms of what exactly those differences are, I couldn't really say at this point. That's just another level of, of depth, yeah. though, isn't it? It's like, yeah. So I guess you're kind of on the tip of the iceberg, really, for, for the research that you're doing. And then yeah. as you go further, you'll you'll get deeper. Yeah, it's just scratching the surface right now, to be honest. Um, there's a decent amount of research into, you know, how the equine muscles behave using EMG, which is the technology that I use. But it it is in its infancy. There isn't a lot out there that you can draw from. 
So right now we kind of are starting out and just developing more and more research and hopefully it'll we'll be able to talk about a lot more if I speak to you in the yeah future. no we'll definitely do that because we, we definitely want to know what results you found and um, so you gave up being a vet so that you could ride more and I can't imagine you've got much time <laughs> now to be able to ride at all no I don't ride as much um, I do occasionally get to go out I've been riding a bit more recently but um, my horse is in Canada and he's he's kind of retired anyway so it's okay okay. but when I finish the PhD because it is quite time consuming I would like to get really into it again and start riding a lot more would you like to compete again would you like to compete over here I think that would be great it'd be a really good experience to compete over here definitely so you've got one year left then, and then you yeah. have loads of time. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> oh, well, good luck with it, Lindsay. Thank you so much for talking to us. If you do um, want any help, like I said, hashtag horse hour, the guys would definitely, definitely. I mean, you'll be inundated with stuff. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I should also mention before we go um, that we're actually running an event at Myersco College on December 8th, and it's entitled it kind of matches with our previous discussion on this, but it's entitled Improving Sport Horse Performance, Bridging the Gap Between Science and Practice. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, so we've got researchers uh, such as Hillary Clayton. She's coming over from the States, who I mentioned previously, actually. She's just one of the most well-known equine locomotion experts in the world. So, you know, hearing from her is it's a great opportunity to be able to hear her knowledge. It's, it's just so vast and immense. Simon Curtis is going to present some of his research. He's also a very well-known farrier mm-hmm. and he's, he's in horse and hound quite a bit as well. Um, he's going to be presenting his work on hoof balance. Oh, that'd be good. What on using different types of um, metals and different types of shoes? His research is mainly in in foals and looking at how their feet are balanced based on trimming. Ah. So he's got pressure mats that can actually show you how the hoof is balanced based on how he's trimmed them. So it's very, very interesting. Can you ask him a question for me? I'm hearing loads about these new soft shoes. Have you heard about them? So you have... I've seen an article. I was actually going to ask him myself. I looked at them and I was like, oh, interesting. Okay. Because it kind of makes sense that if you have a softer shoe, it protects the hoof, it protects the foot, but it means that they won't twist and get stuck on stones. What the softness of the shoe does is bends around any object that they stand on when you go for a hack, for example. Mm. And to me, I thought, oh, it makes perfect sense. So I'd love to know what his thoughts are, whether we stick with the standard iron shoes that we have or whether we're moving towards softer ones. Yeah, I... I couldn't say, but I could definitely ask him for what, sure. What I was question were you going to ask? I was going to just ask him what his thoughts on them were because yeah. I had seen an article on them as well. <laughs> so, uh, But his knowledge is, again, immense. I mean, he was the only farrier that was allowed to shoot Frankel. So I think that says oh, wow, a lot about yeah. him. So he'll be presenting. I'll be presenting my research and Laura Whiteway, who is um, a local show jumper who's you know, really up and coming, great rider, is going to be doing a demonstration for me and how we collect the data from these horses. And also Danny Holt is going to be presenting some information on our actual surface testing equipment. So we've got a mechanical hoof tester 
that is essentially a drop rig, but it drops a hoof at the same speed. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...need an impact and force as a galloping horse would. So from that rig, we can get a lot of scientific information on how the, you know, hoof reacts to the surface so she'll be using that to present where is this event it's at Myerskill college and where can we go online to find any information we have a website racesresearch.org there's also a facebook page and the event is mainly on the facebook page it's just called races and you should be able to find us on there maybe i could tweet it to you now our facebook page yeah that would be great are you on twitter yeah uh, races is also on twitter and so am i and how can we follow you? Because we want to know how you're getting on. <laughs> I believe I am St. George Equine. Okay. And races is just races underscore research Brilliant. for Twitter. But yeah, it's on December 8th. It starts at 10 in the morning at Myerskill College, which is in the northwest of England in Billsborough area. Well, good luck. I hope it goes well. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us. Will there be reports out afterwards of the event? Yes, I think we are hoping to film it. And obviously, if the filming works out, we'll be you know, putting it out there. Um, and I think the university is wanting to write up some reports on it and articles on it as well. Oh, so. But there's nothing like going and actually seeing these guys speak because they are you're all top, top, top of the game in terms of research. So it'd be amazing. Yeah, it's the new, it's the latest research. So, and 
And our whole goal is to present it in a way that, you know, we are talking about how you could probably practically apply this and bridge the gap between science and practice, as the title says. Thanks so much for joining us. It's Lindsay St. George. We can follow you on Twitter. And we're going to catch up on the 1st of October 2016, because your report will be published on the 30th of September. And we want to know everything and how you get on and all your data and what you found. Great. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, speak to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye. We're taking a different turn because as equestrians, we hear quite a lot of bad publicity and bad press about horse racing. So I thought, what better than to get on my lovely friend Stephen King. He's only 20. However, for a 20-year-old, his career has been phenomenal so far. He's ridden for Richard Hannon, Paul Cole, and he's ridden at Goodwood and Epsom, as well as loads of other really huge races. How are you, Stephen? Not too bad, I'm good. Thank you for joining us, because we want to get the inside scoop of what it's like to be a jockey, and so I thought you'd be the perfect person. But let's start from the beginning, because your careers uh, tend to be quite limited with the amount of time that you have. So let's start with, how did you first get into riding? Well, I was was only 16 at the time, and uh, my uncle used to be a really good jockey. His name was Tony McGlone. Um, and he used to ride for the likes of Godolphin, um, Richard Hannon, Michael Stout, all the top class trainers. Um, and I'd never sat on a horse in my life. And then went up to Richard Hannon at 16. He taught me how to ride. I got my license out with him. And yeah, went oh, wow. like that. So you've actually got to get a jockey license? Yeah, yes, you do. You've, you've, got, you've got to go on, um, well, you go on a nine week course to get your stable stuff, um, you like MVQs. And then you, if you're good enough, they, they can put you through and do um, your jockey license. So you go for and do your jockey license after that. I had no idea. So in my little naive brain, I thought that if you just went hunting and then you did a couple of point to points, eventually you could work your way up to doing the bigger races. But in actual fact, you you can go straight in there at the top. Yeah, you've, you've, well, you've just got to have a license. Okay. So and how long do you get that license for? Uh, the license lasts a year and then every year you've got to renew it. But the license is actually from the boss. So whoever you're riding, you've as an apprentice you've got to have a boss Hmm. so the boss holds your license so if you leave them they can keep your license i see okay so they've got you by the ghoulies then haven't they yeah yeah, basically (laughs) basically that's the one so what was it like your first experience when you're 16 and you get on a horse and you've never been on one before it was i I couldn't even trot (laughs) i didn't didn't have a clue Um, were you scared no, I wasn't. I wasn't because I love adrenaline. Um, yeah, I lo- love adrenaline. It plays a, plays a huge part in being a jockey. Mm. Um, and yeah, got on the horse within a week. I was I was riding, and then within three weeks, I was riding out for owners and all different people. And within, within six months, within three. So, oh, sorry, hold on. Within three weeks of getting your license, you're riding for other people. No, no, no. no. Within three weeks of me just just learning how to ride a horse. I was because obviously um, you have owners and then you have the trainers. Yeah. And then um, the the owners are sort of who own the horse and the, they they pick who they want to ride the horse and stuff. But when they come and see the horse in the yard, obviously you have the people who just ride out. Hmm. And I was I was riding for quite high class owners and that just riding out at home, but meeting high class owners and the governor used to say to me, Richard Hannon, he's only been riding for three weeks. <laughs> He'd look at me. And go, All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> And is that because Richard thought you were really good, so knew you could cope with he, it? He 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 soon had uh, potential and ability, so he he put his faith into me, and helped me out a lot. 
So what would he class as good potential and ability then? What do you need to be a jockey? Uh, you've, got to have, you've obviously got to have strength, uh, balance, and you've got to, you've got to sort of have a, uh, the mentality to know what the horse wants, if, mm-hmm. um, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Um, and yeah, so he's seen a bit of ability in me and just pushed me, pushed me. And then a year after, I, he set me up for my jockey licence. I then went for my jockey licence, and it took me about another half a year to even get a ride in a race. So I was just working, working on the yard until the governor said to me, here you go, there's a spin for you. And my first ride was at Epsom, so it was quite a big race. Wow. And how did you feel that moment he said you're up? Oh, God. I was, I was ecstatic, <laughs> absolutely ecstatic. Best day of my life. A lot of pressure, though, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was because, to me, I could still hardly ride because I didn't have been riding about a year. So mm. I, I was thinking, oh. But um, yeah, he put his faith into me. But on my first race, it was on a horse called Silky Supreme, and I was half a furlong out, and he uh, dislocated his fetlock. Oh! So I had to pull him up. And but, how did he do yeah. that? It, it was just um, I think because where the track's quite undulated, and he, he he had problems before. But I think he just it, it happens. A horse can horse can do that. And what happened to him afterwards? Hey, he's fine. He's, he's still alive now. He's um. Oh great! So they they didn't they didn't yeah. kill him no, there no. and then. They kept him going. Yeah, he's he's rehomed. He was at a place called Gay Woodford's in the field. And he he just bounces about eating grass now in the field, and he loves it. Yeah, you know, that's it. really good to hear because we often hear horror stories of horses that are racing and they're young, they're babies, they're two and a half yeah. years old, they hurt themselves, and that's it. Their life's over. Yeah. But are the likes of Richard and Paul trying more to rehome racehorses now, and make sure they have a good full life? Yeah, a, a, lot, of, a lot of people do because the owners they, they do have connections with their horses, so they don't want to go and just put down a horse because they've got the connection with it. So you you do as much as you can to make the horse survive and to keep it going. And poor Silky, he went through quite a lot of operations to get himself right, and his owner spent it sounds bad more money than he was probably worth mm. on getting everything fixed for him just so he can go and live a happy life out in the field and does his uh, owner still own him yeah yeah the owner's still got oh, him so they've just retired him yeah his daughter goes up every week and sees him so how many horses did you have a selection of horses to ride or was it just one at a time it was it was just whatever the governor put me up on so you get to epsom silky supreme's there you are doing do you have to do the parade the walking parade uh, no, no. You just just walk out into the uh, into the parade ring, um, speak to the owners. The owners give you instructions, and then you jump up on the horse and go down to the start. What were the instructions? My my instruction, well, the governor, because it's my first ride, and he said to me, sit sit out the back, but have fun, because he was a back running horse, so he he didn't want to be at the front. Mm. So he said, and then when you think, make your way through, and just have fun. So he said, it's your first ride. I just want you to enjoy it. Oh, amazing. So, and and you did enjoy it up to yeah. the, that moment. Yeah, I did. Some buzz. Absolute buzzing. <laughs> and then I guess you had the bu- that was it. You had the bug to keep going. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was it. And so what the happened after bug. that then? Um, well, I, I had a few more rides. Um, then I left. I went to a place called Stanmore's. And then I ended up at Paul Coles. And Paul Coles gave me a few rides. He gave me about six rides at Paul Coles. Mm-hmm. And then I just started fighting with my weight and... I, I just give up at the moment. So You're not riding at all now? No, not at the moment. So how light do you have to be to be a jockey? 
it it depends because all all horses they'll have different weights. So you might get say if if I've got nine stone, I was a seven pound claimer. So then you have to claim seven pound off of the um, nine stone. So you've got to be seven pound lighter than nine stone. What can you? Sorry, can you explain that a little bit? What's a seven pound claimer? So what's the nine stone? Is that the Yes, let's say because you, you get you get given a weight you have to do. So if if I'm riding at nine stone, a seven pound claimer is when they first get their license out. So you take seven pounds off of the original weight in the newspaper. So if you see it as nine stone, and it says seven pound claimer on it, I'd have to be about eight four, and that's with a little tiny saddle. That would be a really really small saddle. So you have to lose weight for each race. Yeah, it depends because I'm quite a big lad for a flat jockey, so I'd have to lose more than the likes of you see Frankie Dottori. He's he's quite small, he's really small, mm. and a lot of the flat jockeys are really small. But then you get the likes of Adam Kirby and George Baker. George Baker's over six foot. Wow! Are there any tips and tricks that the guys tell you to help keep your weight off? Well, basically, it's just burn more calories than you're eating, and a lot a lot of the way is just sweating, a lot of sauna time, stuck mm-hmm. in the sauna. Just eating right, really, making sure you're healthy because you've got to be strong to ride. Yeah. Um, but some days you might have to lose a bit more than your body wants to. So you'd be sat in the sauna for a couple of hours trying to get out just before the race. It's a, it's a lot of pressure for a young guy, especially a young guy that's growing and your muscles yeah. are going to be growing and your body's naturally growing. It's hard yeah. enough. It, well, it's hard, I find it hard to lose weight. I just have to look at chocolate and I put weight on. But, <laughs> but you know, you've got to keep it going all the time. So at the moment then, sadly, you can't race because what are you weighing in at the moment? I'd be, I haven't stood in the scales, I'd be about 9.5 at the moment. But the lightest I've been is 7.12. Blimey, is that actually healthy for you though? No, no. Did you feel ill? Were you like faint? So, so some days you do, some days you do, but it's, it's the buzz of the racing that gets you through it. It's the excitement of it, you know, it's, you get the racing bug and you're caught with it, to be honest. Have there been any times when you've been scared? What, in a race? Yeah. My first ride, I was I was scared, nervous, but after that you sort of get going and it's just, it's just like riding a piece of work at home. You've just got to take it as that and just relax as much as possible because what's in the brain goes through the rain, you're upset the horse will be upset you know what i mean this, mm-hmm. they, they read off you so are the horses quite relaxed then because they always look quite excitable and some of them look yeah. a little bit nervous is it your job to kind of keep them calm yeah yeah it is you can you can get some horses that are fuzzy my, my last ride at goodwood the horse flipped over on top of me um <gasps> getting on it in the parade ring um so we get out and after the race we cross the line and it jinxed and i come off of it again so you came off again uh, yeah, so. But you, hold on, so you've had a horse that flipped backwards and landed on you. Yeah. And then you got up, got back on him, and then yep. he threw you off again. So you hadn't hurt yourself. You're really lucky. No, no, yeah, I've had a few lucky escapes. Oh, wow. And and what, so <laughs> did you did you get back on again after the second one? Well, that that was after the race. I crossed the line and oh. started jinxing, jinxed again. My saddle slipped a little bit and I come off the side. What does jinxing mean? Just when they sort of jinx, say, if, if they're just, they run out from underneath you almost. So you'll be thinking you're going in a straight line. Next thing you know, the horses just run out from underneath you and you land on the floor. The horse is oh. on the other way. So what would you say then to the people that are really critical of the horse racing? I don't see why people are critical of the horse racing. Because you, you, you look in, um, say, show jumping and other things like that, and there's so many more falls. Um, there, there's a lot more fatalities and other uh, equine sports than there is in racing. Mm-hmm. It's just highlighted 
the racing part everyone highlights it and thinks it's cruel and it's it's not that these horses they they get they get looked after so well and this that 24 hour quick care like literally 24 hours you're you're caring for the animal anything happens you you're back on the yard caring for that animal if you think a horse got colic you stay with it all night do you know what i mean because you have an you have an individual bond with each horse as well yeah yeah you do yeah you do some horses you like more than others yeah. <laughs> they're like uh, women really aren't they yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> so, and what about the bit where you know they've they've reduced a few years ago they've, they've reduced the amount that you could actually whip the horses but you, yeah you do see some of them going like really going for it at the end these whips they're called pro cush whips mm-hmm. and they're just there to make a noise back in the day yeah that the sticks did hurt but now they're pro cush sticks. I, I can go get my um, girlfriend's stick and I can hit myself as hard as I want and it won't affect me. It just makes a noise. It just makes a clapping noise. So actually it doesn't hurt them that much? No, no, it, it, make, it, it doesn't hurt them at all. It makes more. It makes a noise because it's, it's just a cushion, basically, at the end of the stick. And what's the aim of that? Is just to give them that extra bit of oomph to get them going to the finish line? Yeah, yeah exactly, to encourage them to go forward. You're not beating them the only thing you're doing is encouraging them to go forward some horses if you give them a slap they won't they'll go backwards because they don't like it so you you know from experience and what you're riding really to what you're going to do with the stick and trainers do not like you picking up the stick as an apprentice for three rides i rode for paul cole he said to me i do not want you to pick up the stick so i was just pushing hands and heels the whole way Mm -hmm. not not allowed to use use my stick because that was my boss saying i don't want you to hit the horse Oh, that's that's really nice to hear. It's really good. And what would happen if, um, like, what would your bosses do if someone was seen hurting a horse? Oh God, they'd probably hurt you. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. You'd be out of the yard. Your bags would be packed, and you'd be gone. You'd be gone. Trainers don't like it. And did your girlfriend ride as well? Is she a jockey? Uh, well, no, she was a stable lass for Eve Johnson Houghton. Okay. Um, and yeah, she just rode out there riding three, four lots a day. And yeah, she she she's um give up now as well. So why is she given up? Because she she didn't want to be a jockey. So I think she just wanted a bit of a normal life. Yeah. Five, <laughs> five days a week, not twenty four hours, seven days a week. Is that what? So what would your normal day consist of? Well, as an apprentice for Paul Cole, I used to get up at half four in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, go feed the horses at five. Come back, muck out maybe two, three horses. Some sometimes four, and then tack up your first lot, ride three, four horses again. So other trainers, you could go and ride six, seven horses in the morning, and then you you finish work, you feed them, you go home, and then you start again at um, four o'clock, and you go to evening stables where you groom them, you brush them, make sure they're looked after, check their legs for any injuries, any signs of anything. Yeah. And so, so they're looked at constantly every day there. And then they're looked at by the same person that's riding them. So I had no idea that jockeys yeah. looked after the horses as well. Yeah, yeah, jockeys do. Like Frankie Dottori, you'll see him in Newmarket in the mornings and he'll be riding out for different trainers and, and then he'll go to the races start at five o'clock in the morning and they don't, they don't finish till 12 o'clock at night, some nights. Yeah, long days. You've got to have a passion for it, haven't you? Oh yeah, definitely. So, do you yeah. think then it's it's so sad? You've done how many races have you done in the last four years? Probably about only about thirteen. You've done thirteen races. That's quite a lot, and two of the biggest ones. Well, Goodwood and Epsom. I mean, some yeah. guys never get to race there, and that's just like their dream. Yeah. And now you sadly can't ride because of your weight. Do you think there's a chance that you could get your weight off again and go and ride again? Oh, I, I keep I keep thinking. I, I think I will. I think I will be 
getting a license back out in the future. But I think it'll be a jump license, a national hunt license. Oh, really? So, yeah, because I'm perfect weight for national hunt. But it's just, do I enjoy it as much as a flat? And do you? I like the flat. I'm a flat man. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but sometimes life takes a bit of a detour, doesn't it? It's good to try other stuff. Do they teach you, when you're going through your apprenticeship, do they teach you any other kinds of riding? Like to learn control and balance like do they teach you the dressage basics no no not really it's literally just get on and go just yeah you go to the british racing school and they the british racing school they like people that's never rode before so they can teach them how to ride the way a racehorse should be rode so you, you could get a top dressage rider put him on a um, racehorse and they'd be clueless like if you put me on one i'd be clueless if you put me on a dressage horse i'd be clueless so it's would you be interested yeah. in riding one though, or riding a show jumping horse, or, or learning a different yeah, technique? Yeah, I'll give it a go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give it a go. So, what do you think you've got the love for then? Have you got the love for being a jockey, or have you got a love for the horses? Well, you've got to have the love for the horses to be a jockey. Yeah, both really. And you mentioned earlier that you can assess what the horse is feeling and what the horse wants to do so is there an element yeah. of kind of horse behavior and body language in, in your training as well yeah yeah there, there is because it's, it's like a person no person's the same so no horse is going to be the same so you've just got to try and make the best of the bad situation so if it's a bad horse you've got to just try and keep it relaxed or just do what you think's best for the horse to be honest and that's the overall view then of, of everyone that you've ever worked for is is for yep. the best of the horse. And that includes the owners, the trainers, your governor, the jockey, yep. down to the stable hands. It is about yep. looking after the horse. It's really refreshing to hear that because we've heard so, we yep. don't know, we're not in your industry. We're just people that have horses and we have them because we love them, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, but we just hear horror stories and I guess I wanted to find out the truth and say, look, what is it really like? Yeah, it's, it's completely different to what people think. Every year you hear, when the Grand National's on, every year you have people screaming, saying, it's really bad, I'm boycotting it, I don't want to watch it, too many horses get hurt, it's too dangerous. What are your thoughts on the Grand National? Well, if, if you watch Grand National and there's a loose one and there's a horse running loose, mm-hmm. where does he follow? They're pack animals, so they follow the pack. And you've seen nine times out of ten, they'll still jump that fence, yeah. even without a jockey on top of them. To be honest, yeah, there is a lot of injuries in the Grand National, but the jockeys love it and the horses, they do love it. Why do you think there's lots of injuries in the Grand National as opposed to other races? Well, I've, I can't really say much on the Grand National because I'm, I'm, I'm not a jump boy. Oh, but yeah, you My, my opinion on the Grand National is people are saying, um, make the fences smaller, make the fences a lot smaller. But if you think... If, the, if you look at hurdle racing, the horses are a lot going a lot faster, so they're jumping a lot quicker. They're not having time to think about what they're jumping. So if you raise the fences a little bit, it slows the horses down. The horses think about a lot more what they're going to do, and then it gives them time to have a think and then have a ping over the fence. So your next licence then, which is a, what did you say, a hunting? Yeah, it would be national hunt licence, so it'd be a jump licence. What would that mean? Where could you go? What would you do with that? Um, it'd be exactly the same as what I'm uh, doing on the flat, but with, for jump trainers. So it'd be the same game, the same dieting, but not as much dieting because I can be a bit heavier. What weight can you be with, with doing the jumping? Uh, well, your perfect weight's probably about nine and a half to ten stone jumping. Amazing! So, You're under that. You're perfect. So yeah, I can I can have a McDonald's when I want. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I do like my food. I do love my food. Aww. Do you ever find yourself looking, like, looking online and researching other riders and seeing what they do and what techniques they use? Because I'm a big believer in in using in hand work. So for any whatever discipline you're riding in, I think using in hand and getting an on the ground bond with your horse, I find it's worked for me. Yeah, Is that yeah. something that you would do? Yeah, yeah, de- definitely. If you, I, I just used to sit when I was sixteen. I used to sit every single day and watch the racing and watch exactly how jockeys ride and what works for different jockeys, and then I'd adapt that to my ride. And if it didn't work for me, it didn't work for me. And then you just keep trying to adapt different things to your ride. And I never really got taught how to ride. I just watched people and took in what I was watching. It's, well, it's a totally different type of riding, isn't it? I mean, they don't they don't really feel your legs, that so, so your legs aren't wrapped around the horse. Um, no. It's not about being strong. And so, What is it about? It's, well, you, you have got to be, you, to push a horse even over three furlongs when you start riding is, it's the hardest thing I've ever experienced in my life, just to, because it, it is so, it takes so much effort and so much strength to ride in a race. Hmm. It's, it's unbelievable how fit these jockeys are they are so fit but they're so fit but then it sounds bad but they're they're not like nourished they're keeping their weight down so they're not eating loads of they wouldn't be eating loads of red meat and stuff like that they'd be white chick they'll be chicken fish and stuff like that yeah. so they're not they're not really big muscly people some of them but it's both a lot of riding techniques that are, are making the horse strong and the horse supple, and yeah. it's about balancing the horse. Yes. What is that? Are those the same things that you have to take forward to racing as well? Yeah, yeah. You have to have a horse balance. You have to have a horse balance. One of the best jockeys for keeping a horse balance is Frankie Dottori. Mm-hmm. Keeping a horse balance is one of the main things that you have to do. Can you tell me one of your worst experiences riding, Steve? Oh. um... I was I was riding a yearling uh, for this man called Gary Woodford, and the horse has flipped over on top of me. I've um, smashed my head on a post and rail fences that go around the little school. I went straight through the first rail, second rail, and the third rail that me and the horse both landed on top. I fractured my jaw, and that that wasn't very nice. I had another bad one about three months ago. I was going down to the start on a horse called Brave Archibald for Paul Cole. And we're cantering down to the start and he starts bucking and plunging and he falls over. So I've gone on his head. He's flicked me up in the air and I've landed on my back. I've fractured my collarbone, fractured my sternum and three ribs. Oh, my gosh. I, I still rode in the race. You and... still rode with all those broken bones? Yeah, I sort, of, I sort of hid from the doctor. I got a bit of a telling off after, but wow. yeah, I still, still rode in the race. What made that youngster flip over on you? I don't know. He just stood still and he froze and next thing you know... I'm on the floor with him on top of me. Do you think that might be fear? It's it's fear and it's 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 just like if you get on any if any horse sort of thing and they've never been sat on it in their life. It's saying if if I've never had anyone jump to my back before and I didn't know anything, someone jumped to my back, you would be a bit like scared. But but I, I don't know how to explain it. Um, all horses have got different mentalities. So some horses you can get on and they're they're fine, absolutely mm. fine. But then you get on other ones, and they could be quite bullshy. They could, yeah, some yearlings are really bullshy, and they they try and hurt you. If you know what I mean, you walk yeah. in a box with some yearlings, they turn around, they look at you, try to bite you, try to kick you. But you've got to deal with that. And how do so, you deal with that? Just if you put confidence in a horse, nine times out of ten, a horse will show you confidence back. Yeah, you're completely right with that. 
So again, you know, even though they are babies and whether we agree or disagree and that yearlings, a lot of people disagree with the fact that yearlings should be ridden that young and they think they should wait until they're older and they're a little bit more developed. Um, But for your job, your job is to build confidence in the horse to make that let them so they can trust you so that you can take them out onto a track and you guide them the way, basically. Yeah, exactly. So, Stephen, what is your plan then? What are you going to do? Come on, we need um, you to get back on the horse, as it says. My, my, my <laughs> plan is, I, I don't know at the moment. I'm just having a little think at the moment about if I'm going to go jumping. Um, I've, I keep riding out for a man called Noel Williams. Well, I, I would, while you're having a bit of time out, I would definitely look at the other techniques as well. Because I think, because you're quite passionate about it, I think you'd find it really interesting in the terms of horse behaviour and yep. um, the bond, bonding with horses, and, and also just the very basic stages. The things that we learn as riders, you know, with the dressage and the jumping, is yep. everything's relaxed. The horse has to be relaxed. His head has to be low. He has to, his muscles have to be relaxed. And that's how we get the best out of them, is by having a, a calm, relaxed horse. And I think... I think if you learn some of the things that I got taught for dressage, I think that would help you in your racing. Definitely, yeah. without a doubt. Definitely. Yeah, just with the bonding and the getting to know them. And also, it's yeah. fascinating. I mean, these horses are just incredible creatures. You know, they're so intelligent. I find the whole the whole thing fascinating. Yeah. See, I, I've done a lot of work for um, Gary Woodford as well. Yeah. Uh, he, he employed me, and that man is... He's he's a genius. Is he's, he? He's taught he taught me. To be, to be honest, when I was sixteen, I didn't really know anything about horses. Mm-hmm. I, I I had a few rides. Then I went to this man called Gary Woodford, and he taught me so much, absolutely so much about horse. Then these are all different horses. I, I we had we had a bad little car, kind of Mara pony. Who we had to sort out because it, he kept running at the door and trying to barge out the stables and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But just just he just showed me so many different ways to to load unload. Like tricky horses, um, just horses that were dangerous, and it was basically their last chance. So this man Gary Woodford would he would sort him out. And so how did he deal cheap. with the horse then that that was charging at the stable door? Um, well, they they do a lot of um, work with tarpaulin, mm-hmm. and it, it it sounds really it sounds really weird, but a piece of tarpaulin you can sort you can sort a horse out because you can get it to walk over the tarpaulin. But Gary Woodford always always told me, why do people lead horses by the shoulder? Because if a horse isn't going to walk over something before you, because you're his leader. So yeah. if you're trying to make the horse walk over it before you do, the horse is thinking, why do I have to do it before my If my leader's not going to do it, why should I do it? So he taught me to lead horses by just walking in front of them, straight in front of them. And they, they just mirror you, basically. So you walked over the tarpauling and then the horse yep. walked over the tarpauling and bit by bit you built trust, he built trust yep. in you and yep. at what point did he stop charging at the stable door? Just just when he got confidence that no one's trying to hurt him and he, he was quite a bolshy little pony but once once horse gets this, like I said, once horse has got confidence in you and you put the horse's um, confidence in the horse, yeah, you're winning. Ah, oh, Stephen, we'll leave it on that note. Thank you so much. Yeah. Really appreciate it. I'm not very good at this interview and stuff. You're amazing. You're fine. You've just been honest. It was great. Are you? How can we stay up to date with what you're doing? 
got uh, Instagram and Facebook. Okay, what's so. your Instagram? We'll follow you on Instagram. I think it's just Steve King. So Steve King, because there's two yeah. Stephen Kings. There's one from Australia, another famous jockey. He's like, he's on, You, if you Google Stephen King, I'm really sorry, Steve, but he's the one that comes up. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. That must drive you mental. You have to change your name. No, well, people always say to me, I should write a better book, so I'll get it all the time. So, <laughs> yeah. oh, we can follow you on Instagram and on Facebook. Good luck with everything. Maybe we'll catch up next year when you're doing Will your do. jumping and you can let us know what you're up to. Will do. All right, cheers. Take care. See you later. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget you can share your stories, talk about your charity, your business or your event with us on Twitter. Just hashtag horse hour. It's every Monday between 8 and 9 p.m. UK time. You can also follow us at horse hour or you can follow me at Amy Stevenson one. I'll speak to you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.